Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And this month's episode is about sexual orientation and how it might relate to body image and eating disorders. And then next month, we'll be talking about gender identity and how that might relate to body image and eating disorders. Yeah, so across the two episodes, we will be touching on body image and eating disorders slash disordered eating in the LGBTQ plus community. Right, and we've just separated the episodes out based on sexual orientation and gender identity because obviously they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Something today's guest reminds us is that everyone has a gender identity, irrespective of sexual orientation and people of all genders have a sexual orientation like being cisgender is a gender identity and being straight is a sexual orientation yeah right and before we get into things it should go without saying that we are all more than our gender expression and identity and our sexual orientation there's so many things to encompass completely So, as a bit of background to this episode, as neither Jade nor I are experts in this area, this episode is inspired by a plenary session I attended at the International Conference for Eating Disorders back in March. The session was called Let's Get Things Straight, I'm Not, Eating Disorders in the LGBTQ Plus Community, and it was amazing. There was literally a standing ovation at the end, which, let me tell you, is unusual at an academic conference. That is academic goals right there. Yeah. (laughs) We are really lucky to have one of the speakers from the session joining us on this episode, Dr. Gerald Carlzo. Before we get to Gerald, do you want to say a little bit more about the panel, Nadia, please? Thanks. In advance. (laughs) Sure. So the main aim of the session was to look at disordered eating behaviours, body image and eating disorders in LGBTQ plus individuals and identify barriers for care. Wait, Nadia, so it might be an idea to pause quickly and say something about the conference. Yeah, probably backtrack a little bit. That's a good idea. So the International Conference for Eating Disorders is the world's largest conference, I believe, for eating disorder professionals put on by the Academy for Eating Disorders. This year, almost 1,500 researchers, clinicians and people with lived experience attended the conference from, I think, 49 different countries, don't quote me, and... um, (laughs) Essentially, you spend three days together in a large corporate hotel. Wow, sounds fun. (laughs) So what do you actually do, by the way? Uh, It is fun, although it's kind of intense. You get to meet lots of people um, doing very interesting work from all around the world, and there's an opportunity to learn and get up to speed with what else is happening in the field outside of your little niche, because Mm. in academia we all work in little niches. Little hubs. Yep. I guess the downside is that it's a bit overwhelming because there's a lot going on at the same time and often you have to pick between different educational sessions and workshops on a really wide range of topics related to eating disorders. So, for example, uh, eating disorder prevention, treatment, stigma, risk factors, there'll be stuff on research methods, clinical best practice, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, But in theory, at least, there are a couple of sessions where everyone gets together. So there's the keynote talk, which this year was on suicide, Side note, anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of all mental health illnesses. Um, And research indicates that one in five people who die due to anorexia die by suicide. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so so the keynote was given by Professor Thomas Joyner, a research psychologist and a leading expert on suicide. Very interesting, but obviously heavy. Um, But yeah, as I say, an important topic for for the field. Um, But I would suggest looking him up if you're interested in learning more about, about that. Um, and then there were four plenary sessions that most people go to as well. So this year there's, there was one on short-term eating disorder treatment programs, one on compulsory treatment, 
one that don't tell anyone but I didn't attend um on <laughs> neuroscience and treatment um I think and then and then there's one that we'll be talking about on this episode which is on social and cultural factors that influence eating disorders and then Jade you're like this bit there's this dance party at the end which uh, <laughs> just trying to think how to describe it memorable I love how you say <laughs> I love that which is so true but <laughs> you know you kind of think all the like researchers in the field like yeah really letting loose during the day loose. very academic let's just be professional at night all hell breaks loose exactly exactly party you've got on. Uh, and then this year it was themed because it was um, St Patrick's Day oh right yeah so I love I love a St Patrick's theme was it all kind of green yeah, there are lots of accessories. Do you know what? I wish I was there. I'm jealous. Right. <laughs> Just for that aspect. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the sociocultural plenary on eating disorders in the LGBTQ plus community. Okay, so the plenary. I should probably say that the plenary setup is three talks by three speakers, followed by a discussant who pulls the, the talks together. Right. Uh, the first talk was by Mark Hatzenbuhler, an associate professor in social medical sciences at Columbia University who spoke about the impact of structural stigma on health inequalities in LGBTQ plus uh, populations. Then, Gerald, today's guest, gave a talk on understanding the relationship between sexual orientation and eating disorders like pathology in youth. And then Professor John Arcliffe from the University of Nottingham uh, gave a talk on body image and trans people. Then, Dr Rachel Levine was a discussant uh, who tied everything together Rachel is currently the Secretary of State for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and a professor in paediatrics and psychiatry at Penn State College of Medicine and is the highest ranking transgender uni- uh, government official in the state of Pennsylvania. So at the beginning of her talk, like you have to kind of say if you have any financial disclosures. So she's right. like, I have no, it's like a, like a standard slide that you're like, oh, I've got no financial um conflicts of interest to disclose or something something yeah um but she was like well but i do have a disclosure and she's like i'm a trans woman i'm like the first i, I can't remember if she was like the first trans woman wow um that's awesome so in government but, yeah yeah uh, that's pretty cool um so we're going to be talking to dr allegra gordon next time on the podcast to learn a bit more about body image and eating disorder research among people um, who identify as trans and we are going to hear from gerald shortly but before we get there, can you say just a little bit more about Mark Haxenbuhler's talk on structural stigma? I'll try, for sure, but I am... Um, <laughs> Give it a go. Uh, but I'm also going to link uh, to a talk that he did that I found on YouTube in the show notes because I'm definitely not going to do it justice and I just think this stuff is really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so anyway, the talk was on the impact of structural stigma on health inequalities in LGBTQ plus populations. So it wasn't specific to eating disorders, but I really like the focus on structural stigma. Yeah, and I actually don't think we hear about structural stigma that often in research. So in psychology, we normally focus on interpersonal stigma. So when one group negatively stereotypes and discriminates against another group, and kind of individual level stigma, which can include concealment. So not disclosing um, you have like a mental health condition, for example, or self-stigma, which is when someone internalizes negative societal views about something related to their own identity. Um, So this is common among people living in larger bodies who internalise the negative stereotypes that society holds against fatness, which, given how strong these messages are in society, it makes sense that people just start believing them. Yeah, totally. Which is a shame, but yeah, it's the case often. Yeah, so it's not like the individual's fault, it's like 
it's these are the images these are the things and pressures that people feel from the society and external cues yeah. that they receive and then you just start believing that about yourself yeah right? why wouldn't you it's you know it's there all the time right and kind of in response to that the research is pretty clear that both interpersonal and individual level stigma can have many negative health consequences mm. and i can feel a spoiler coming <laughs> on for structural stigma nadia so yeah, yeah wait wait for it jade wait i'm really into this so right. structural stigma first of all is when stigma gets played out at a policy and institutional level Mark Katzenbühler and his colleague Bruce Link define structural stigma as, and I'm quoting, the societal level conditions, cultural norms and institutional policies that constrain the opportunities, resources and well-being of the stigmatised. Which is a lot to take in, so we, um, break it down. But yeah, and there's some, some examples. So structural stigma has its origins in the related concept of institutional racism, which recognises the important roles of institutions, e.g. Um, banks, governments, schools... Mm. Uh, etc. Universities. Yeah. Um, and cultural ideologies that perpetuate racism. So, for an example of structural stigma as it applies to sexual orientation, could be same sex marriage bans right. at a policy level. Yeah, okay, got it. So, <laughs> um, so what do you think about giving a couple of like example studies? Yeah. Time? Yeah, sure, yeah. I reckon we should. Sounds okay, good. good. So, one study, Mark Hatzenbuehler and his colleagues compared mental health data among lesbian, gay and bisexual adults living in US states where there were protective policies for LGB, LGB populations, the so lesbian, gay, bisexual populations, so such as protective policies such as uh, hate crime statutes and employment non-discrimination policies that include sexual orientation as a protected class, to mental health data among LGB adults where there were no such statewide policies. Okay. So compared the compared the mental health of the of LGBT people in states where there were protective policies and then to people in states where there were not protective policies. Okay, cool. So wait, let me guess the LGBT adults living in states with protective policies have better mental health than those that were living in states without the protective policies. Exactly. Right. So even when controlling for demographics and perceived discrimination, this was found to be the case, which suggests that structural stigma in the form of these policies had an impact on people's mental health. Right, yeah, it's clearly a big factor in terms of stigma, looking Mm. at this structural stigma. So although this is based on cross-sectional data though, isn't it? Yes, it is. But there have also been a couple of longitudinal follow-up studies that support the idea of structural stigma as well, to kind of to um, flesh out the the research, the puzzle. different areas, yeah. yeah. Um, so one study, again, Mark Hatzenbuehler and his colleagues, they were able to test the impact of the constitutional amendments in the US banning same-sex marriage, um, amendments that were passed in 2004-2005, um, as they could compare respondents' data, like mental health data, from 2001 and 2005, so before the bans and then after the bans. Right. Um, and they found that in LGB adults who lived in those states where those bans were passed, among these individuals, they there was an increase in mood disorders, in alcohol use disorders, and a 248% increase in generalised anxiety disorder between those two different time points among that population. Right, so essentially what it's saying is the mental health worsened mm-hmm. over this yeah. time point. Yes, was there any difference in LGB respondents' mental health in states that didn't impose these bans? So, like, in comparison? Yeah, so there were no differences in LGB respondents' mental health 
in states that didn't impose the bans. And there were no differences in mental health of heterosexual respondents in the states that did pass the bans. So with those two things taken together, mm. um, you've got more support for the hypothesis that structural stigma had the negative effect of mental health, of the declining mental health. In um, the LGB communities. Yeah, I exactly. Mean. Um, so is there any evidence for the opposite effect? So like, can inclusive policies improve health? So more of a positive side of the coin. Well, then you asked, Jade. <laughs> not, it's not like I had an idea where to go no. with this conversation. <laughs> um, but, and I promised the last, last study I wanted to, to share with you on this, but, uh, again, Mark Hatzenbrühler and his colleagues published a paper in 2012, and in that study they found in the 12 months after the legalisation of same-sex marriage in the state of Massachusetts, gay and bisexual men living in Massachusetts reported substantial reductions in several mental health and physical health problems including a 14% reduction in depression and an 18% reduction in hypertension compared to the 12 months before the legalisation of same-sex marriage. So basically there are some markers of mental health and physical health that seem to improve. Right. And they also found that gay and bisexual men experienced a 15% reduction in mental health and medical care utilisation and costs in the 12 months following the legalisation of same-sex marriage. And in contrast, during the same period, healthcare costs increased for the general population in Massachusetts. So again, supporting the specificity, the specificity, how do I say that? Specificity. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. We, uh, <laughs> that word. <laughs> that word. Um, which supports the specificity of these positive effects. So like, taking it all together, I'm just trying to think. We've got, when you ban same-sex marriage for the LGBT communities there seems to be a decline in this mental health what has like a yeah negative yeah. impact on mental but health but when same-sex marriage was legalized in the state of massachusetts you're seeing an improvement in male gay and uh, bisexual kind of mental health and possible physical health as well yeah so that's what the they're finding seems and these, pretty and these clear. are really large like public health type studies so they're based on like big data samples um there's obviously a lot more that you'd want to like tease out and pull out yeah. and like, you, you'd want to speak to people and see what they have to say but this is kind of but based on the big data sets these are general trends that we're seeing so I think it's really interesting and I think it kind of takes away when we're looking at things like stigma that actually there are there are policies in place that, well the stigma happens and actually when we're talking about stigma there's so something that Mark Hatzenbühler spoke about in his talk was kind of like the iceberg of of stigma so mm. you can have like the individual level stigma at the top which is like the internalization of stigma itself yeah yeah um and the negative like attitudes and um that others might impose on you and then you have like the interpersonal stigma kind of as the iceberg it's a bit bigger and then like underneath the water you've got all of these like wider big structural social policies and all these massive things that play a huge part i think the picture seems pretty evident to me of for you know the idea of being inclusive in in terms of you know sexual orientation and gender because then it seems like by being less inclusive we're only making it harder for people and having more negative effects yeah and I think what it says to me also is that it's not putting all the work on the individual so if you've like internalized like fat phobia or like this that or the other it's not like okay you need to unlearn that it's like we need to have more protective policies to help you, like, like a to, to, level. Even, to even get you to a point where you are able to unlearn those messages. So exactly. I think it's, I, I like that kind of broader focus. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
Well, that was super interesting. So I think now it's time to introduce Gerald. Yeah. Um, okay, so Dr. Gerald Calzo, friend of the podcast, is an associate professor in the Division of Health Promotion and Behavioral Science at San Diego State University. He is a developmental psychologist with postdoctoral training in social epidemiology. Prior to coming to SDSU, Gerald was an assistant professor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and a research scientist in the Division of Adolescence and Young Adult Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Gerald's research focuses on the development of gender and sexual orientation health disparities in adolescence and young adulthood, with two primary research areas. So his first line of research concerns the development of body image and eating disorder risk in heterosexual and sexual minority males. And his second line of research focuses on using community-based participatory research approaches, that was hard to say, (laughs) to develop school and community-based programs to support the health and positive youth development of gender and sexual minority adolescents and young adults. Brilliant. Um, so, one, I know, community-based participatory research is like a tongue twister. I trip over it all the time. And then add approach on the end. <laughs> it's a whole different one. Not even going to try. So, um, but one quick thing to say before we hear the interview. So, in the interview, I use the term sexual minorities to refer to lesbian, gay and bisexual populations, kind of reflecting the language that we use in academia all the time yeah. and public health, to be fair. Mm. And towards the end of the interview, Joel highlighted that we don't use the term sexual minorities in real life at all, um, which I think is really important and made me think quite a lot about the language we use in academia and public health um, can be sometimes a little removed to everyday language yeah. and, and then how people want to be referred to as like themselves. It's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because the language that we use and other people use, it, it, it varies completely. It's important to actually have that conversation. I know, because like, it made me think like, as a brown person, I don't like to be. I don't ever refer to myself as BAME or like B A what B A M E. Like it makes me like yeah. Rule. I don't. I don't like it. it. Makes me bristle a bit. But it's used everywhere. And I guess even in academic writing, I probably. I, I imagine I would use it because you're kind of like. You're Feels kind of, like it's appropriate for yeah. the context, which won't be appropriate. Just something something to think about. But I'm glad Joe brought that up towards the end. Yeah, I'm glad too. So let's let's listen. Yeah. Joel, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So this is really inspired by hearing you talk at the International Conference for Eating Disorders. I was like, I have to, and I, I wanted to have you on for ages, but I was like, after I heard that, I was like, we have to make this happen, like, right, right, right now. So I'm really excited that it is. As you know, we're going to be talking about sexual orientation and body image and disordered eating, which is your absolute specialty. So why don't we start with, I think research that I'm familiar with seems to indicate that people who identify the sexual minority are at a higher risk of all of these things, of of body dissatisfaction, of disordered eating and eating disorders. And before we get to the why, can you say a little bit about the research that suggests like how we know this is the case? Sure. Um, You know, I do think that um, research on this area um, has definitely been expanding um, definitely over the past 20 years or so. Um, And, you know, a lot of this research started from, you know, a lot of clinical observations, you know, noting that sexual minorities, so um, lesbian, gay, bisexual um, populations, you know, proportionally are, you know, a small subset of the general population. But in clinical samples, you know, clinical settings um, seem to be overrepresented, um, particularly among men. And so, you know, when that 
seems to happen in the data, you know, the general perception is that, okay, maybe this group um, is at higher risk. And so from that observation, more research um, started to happen um, and different types of study designs. So community sample surveys, um, general population surveys, so large scale um, surveys. And, you know, I'm a social epidemiologist. And so the main thing is, you know, for any type of health um, surveillance, what um, folks are really interested in is that preponderance of evidence, you know, across many different types of study designs. Um, and what, you know, what we can conclude from many years of um, data collection is that overall, it does appear that individuals who identify as sexual minorities or non not heterosexual mm -hmm. um, in general might appear to be at greater risk for reporting disordered eating behaviors or um, greater body dissatisfaction. But also, you know, as the research expands and um, there's a greater critical lens trying to understand what is it specifically about sexual orientation broadly, because everyone has a sexual orientation. You know, heterosexual individuals have a sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And folks really start to apply research on sexual orientation health disparities you know, study designs that were developed to understand depression, HIV, and everything like that to also understand eating disorders and body image um, more critically. Um, folks are starting to understand that, okay, there's diversity among individuals who experience or express uh, disordered eating behaviors, um, body image concerns, and everything. Um, and, you know, we have to recognize that not everyone who has a minority sexual orientation um, is going to experience body image concerns or um, disordered eating. And so, you know, these sort of conclusions that were drawn very early on, for example, that, you know, gay and bisexual men are more likely, for example, to be at greater risk for anorexia um, right. and bulimia. And, you know, lesbians are just protected overall from eating disorders. Um, are starting to get greater scrutiny. And, you know, by contrast, you know, folks are really starting to understand that there's heterogeneity in these groups. Um, so I know that was a little bit more of a complicated response, but, you know, identity is a complex thing. And so if we're going to make these sweeping generalizations, that identity is associated with a health outcome. We have to look at this from a more critical lens because we don't want to equate identity with health. Yes, yeah, I think that's that's really important. And as you say, identity is really, really complex. And I think it's it is easy to get drawn into the to those sweeping statements. And especially when you have like a case study or a few anecdotal like comments, you're like, oh yeah, that that makes sense. So I think that's really important to to like remind ourselves of. But that said, when we're looking at people who identify as a sexual minority and kind of having that higher risk component of body dissatisfaction, what are some of the mechanisms uh, that suggest why that might be? Right, so that's a really good question. So early on, a lot of the work that was uh, focused on this issue was really focused on, um, again, you know, taking this um, epidemiologic approach. So mm -hmm. comparing, you know, populations. 
um, you know, and these populations were identified based off of identity um, or behavior, you know, can we spot, identify individuals who might be um, lesbian, gay, or bisexual um, at various stages of the lifespan, and then can we compare their risk for, for eating disorders or um, negative body image so that um, we can draw these potential conclusions um, and this could help set you know public health priorities or clinical efforts right mm -hmm. um but then you know once you know that signal is detected obviously you know then it becomes a burden of like identifying the mechanisms you know what might be explaining um some of these differences and so you know some of the hypothesized reasons for these differences one of them is maybe some of this is due to um uh minority stress Mm -hmm. And um, so minority stress is this hypothesis that is somewhat supported um, in research in other health domains. So depression, substance use, um, these are outcomes that uh, sexual minority populations um, are also at greater risk for. And the minority stress hypothesis is that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with being lesbian, gay, or bisexual, mm -hmm. or um, being a man who has sex with men or um, being a man who has sex with men and women or people of multiple gender groups. Mm -hmm. However, you know, um, it's simply the case that um, not being heterosexual is associated with considerable social stigma in many cultures. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and that because folks who have non-heterosexual identities or behaviors or attractions they experience the stigma, they're victimized, mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes outwardly harassed or abused, um, or even because they might anticipate this harassment or this abuse um, in various settings, in healthcare settings, um, in school settings, in workplace. This produces so much stress on the individual. It can impact their ability to get employment, to get married, to do any of these things. All of these things will um, substantially impact their health. And um, this creates these negative pathways. And one of the ways this might manifest is um, in disordered eating. So mm -hmm. disordered eating in terms of um, disordered eating around um, for coping reasons, for example. Um, so that's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis uh, reason for um, greater risk for eating disorders is um, maybe there are different pressures uh, right. that are um, or different um, body image norms um, in some of these communities. Um, so for example, um, you know, every culture um, places uh, different norms, um, appearance norms or appearance ideals on everyone. I mean, uh, we're image focused, many societies are image focused. Um, and there's been some research to suggest that for example, gay men in particular um, uh, might experience greater um, self-objectification, okay? Um, and um, subject themselves to greater um, scrutiny with regards to the importance of, you know, being sexually attractive to partners and everything. Um, and so in order to meet those ideals, um, they might, um, you know, restrict how much they're eating, um, uh, but it might not just be about disorder eating, it might be about other things like, you know, shaving their bodies, um, waxing, um, 
you know, uh, using diet pills or um, weightlifting. So mm -hmm. these are things that, you know, might not be traditionally considered in the disordered eating um, literature, but um, perhaps should be. Right. So when you're kind of talking about some of these perhaps different body image ideals within sexual minorities, do you know, are there any qualitative studies that pass that out and, and look at that in more depth when it comes to body image? Uh, yeah, so there have been specific qualitative studies that have looked at um, specific, you know, appearance-related norms um, within sexual minority communities. And again, this is where I think um, the research has sort of um, migrated away from uh, trying to make sweeping generalizations mm -hmm. about, you know, sexual minority populations as a whole, and really start to recognize that, um, you know, a lot of these statements about body image concerns and disordered eating really need to be contextualized. So what I can tell you about you know, the research on um, different appearance ideals is the findings are somewhat mixed. And I, I think some of this depends on study design, um, as well as, you know, the populations that are being focused on. And so um, large scale um, studies and, and longitudinal studies suggest that sexual orientation differences are um, not as large as what um, folks might expect. So for example, um, or you have to look at, you know, things very specifically. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, uh, a few colleagues of mine and I looked at um, adolescent males to sort of examine differences in um, different types of uh, body image ideals among um, adolescent boys mm -hmm. across um, adolescence and into young adulthood. And we wanted to look at things like concerns about weight and shape, um, desire to have larger muscles, desire about having toned and defined muscles, which is slightly different, mm -hmm. um, and weight gain attempts. Okay. Um, and what we found is that, you know, in particular, um, you know, in adolescent males, um, you know, body image concern that might be more typical of males is any concern about muscularity. Mm -hmm. um, what we found is that the differences with regards to desire to have, um, you know, toned and defined muscles, that's where we tended to find the difference, okay? But mm -hmm. desire to have bigger muscles, not so much. I mean, you know, we did find that, um, you know, the, in general, you know, the differences were not so stark. Do you know what I mean? Um, now, with regards to uh, concerns of weight and shape, however, yes, we did find differences there, okay, which would be consistent with uh, the prior literature in terms of uh, sexual minority males uh, potentially having greater risk for um, weight-restrictive disordered eating behaviors. But again, this is about body image concerns and not necessarily disordered eating. Sure. Now, this is general population data. We were using um, a large national data set in the United States, the Growing Up Today study, mm -hmm. um, to examine this. Other researchers have actually looked at, you know, more specific communities. And this is getting away from this notion that you can make sweeping generalizations about um, the population, but mm -hmm. that, you know, body image concerns and disordered eating potentially need to be um, 
contextualize. You know, these things occur in context. And, um, you know, as a public health person, you know, I want to understand the context in which these things are occurring because that can help with prevention. And so, um, you know, there have been um, several fascinating studies, for example, that have examined how behaviors such as um, compulsive exercise, anabolic um, steroid use, and other types of dietary um, and performance enhancing supplement use um, tend to co-occur, but only among um, gay and bisexual men who are, you know, engaged in, um, uh, you know, certain gay subcultures. Okay, so these are the men who are, you know, going to the gym, you know, uh, tend to be involved in um, party culture. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily see this um, behavior in men who are not engaged in the same context. Okay, so um, these pressures, you know, um, might be somewhat selected. Okay, mm -hmm. so if you're if you choose to be involved in this context, then maybe these pressures um, tend to go along with that. If you choose to be a part of a different tribe, per se, yeah. You know, you might really see that. And so where I see some of the more exciting work occurring um, are folks who are trying to um, examine, you know, other um, uh, subgroups. So for example, um, there's been some fascinating work um, focusing on other um, queer subcultures. So for example, um, bears, okay, which are another subgroup within. Explain what, what bears are for the listeners. Right. So bears, um, Again, a very diverse group, um, mm -hmm. but um, typically defined as, you know, individuals who um, a subculture or a tribe within um, uh, typically um, gay male or men who have sex with men uh, population um, tend to, you know, live in larger bodies, mm -hmm. hairier, um, much more masculine, bearded, um, older. Okay, so again, um, you know, bear subculture as being one that emerges as a rejection of the traditional, you know, archetype of what it is to be gay, you know, particularly, you know, when um, uh, bear was first mentioned, which was, you know, in the 60s and 70s, where the ideal type was um, skinny, muscular, hairless. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so, and where a lot of the critical discussion is occurring around bears right now is, you know, um, bear communities is potentially being a space where gay men who are living in larger bodies could potentially experience um, greater body image acceptance. But it's also a space that is potentially, um, is this a space where um, there's greater diversity or not? You know, um, is this a space that's primarily white? Is this a space where, you know, despite um, there being um, greater diversity in terms of body size, um, are they necessarily tackling issues of weight stigma, for example? Right. And so um, a theory that can sort of like capture um, or explain body image and disordered eating and sexual minority population should be able to capture and explain the diversity that's occurring there. And if all the literature right now is focusing on, you know, explaining why is it that 
gay men in particular are striving to be, you know, restrict their diets. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have, you know, a subset that appears to be not doing that, you know, obviously we need to be doing more research to sort of capture that diversity. Yeah. Sure, sure. And the point that you made at IECD in, in terms of how we need to be considerate of intersectionality when we're thinking about people identifying as sexual minorities, when we're talking about body image and, and mm-hmm. eating disorders as well, kind of leading on. I guess maybe can you explain a bit more what you meant by that in terms of considering intersectionality when we're looking at these groups? Great. So, um, you know, I brought up the point about intersectionality. Um, you know, where I was really coming from is, um, you know, I've been really impressed with the growth in, you know, the types of papers that are coming out with regards to the examination of sexual orientation and how it's, um, you know, connected potentially to eating disorders and, you know, moving away from sexual orientation as captured as a risk factor, for example, but really trying to understand um, the mechanisms underlying why there might be an association between sexual orientation and um, eating disorders. When you start to focus on, you know, what is actually explaining the association between this demographic identifier and, you know, a health outcome, I think that that's when you're starting to move towards an intersectional analysis and start to recognize that, you know, okay, sexual orientation is just one facet of an individual that captures these other processes of, you know, power, privilege, social stratification, oppression, et cetera, that an individual might be experiencing. It also opens up the need to examine other factors, you know, in a person's life that may be critically relevant that we might not have previously been asking. And so that does make things a little bit complicated for research though, because what it's starting to expose is that we probably need to start asking more questions on our surveys. Mm -hmm. Um, Clinicians might have to, you know, expand their appointments a little bit more, you know, in order to get at greater depth with um, with their patients. And, I think the field overall might need to take a step back and maybe consider, you know, working a little bit more with some experts by experience as well as um, considering, you know, community engaged approaches. If anything, to sort of like um, think a little bit more critically about, you know, the types of questions that are being asked Mm -hmm. and whether they are the right questions. And, you know, some of the reason why I brought up intersectionality during, my talk is um, sort of, um, you know, the brain space that I'm dealing with right now because um, a good chunk of my work outside of eating disorders is um, uh, focused on um, a lot of my school-based work and public health work, which is informed by community-based participatory research approaches. And, um, you know, being immersed so much in the community and you know, working in health disparities, and working with um, populations that are you know typically framed as marginalized and usually labeled as at risk. Um, right. When I work with these groups, um, you know, almost always the first thing I hear is like, "Well, why am I called at risk?" You uh-huh. know, 
why is my identity called at risk? Um, you know, when we work with folks who are classified as obese, the, one of the first things they say is like, why, why is obesity at risk? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, what, like we have to look past that and actually have a more serious conversation about, you know, what is it about, you know, the structures that are in place, the systems that are in place that um, are actually producing the health inequity rather than um, this oversimplified category that is masking all of these other things that if we're really focused on health equity, we actually need to target. Um, and so, you know, bringing up intersectionality in my talk, especially at the point that I did, is what I really was hoping to do is, you know, after talking so much about why sexual orientation is important, mm -hmm. I, I was really hoping to do is, you know, after convincing everyone to be focused on sexual orientation is to not leave the talk and hopefully not leave this podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> um, thinking, okay, I have a sexual minority or like a gay or bisexual teenager or adults, mm -hmm. you know, in my study or in my practice. I can make assumptions about them now based off of their sexual orientation right. or right. I can bend them into a certain category now and I know what to do. It's like, actually you don't, you have to, it's like you, you have this piece of information about them. Now you have to ask, ask more, mm -hmm. you know, figure out like what their sexual minority experience is like. Do you know what I mean? Um, it gives you some information. Um, you have to find out what's important to them about their sexual orientation and how it may or may not be contributing to the issue that's at hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because for them, you know, sexual orientation might actually be a resilience factor mm -hmm. for their eating disorder. And what might be more damaging to them when it comes to their eating disorder is something like weight stigma or ability or mm -hmm. class. Class might be impacting their ability to access care. That's what they meant. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all so important, and I think it gets at the the idea of like really looking at the complexity of of identity, and then and then yeah, all these other things that that layer up and help tell a a, a bigger picture. And you're talking earlier about the the context in which people are in. So like, if you're in like gym culture versus like not like like how much that informs how you feel about your body and how like what your relationship to, to food might be um, and then I just wanted to pick up on the point about the community-based participatory research it's something I always like trip over saying but, but essentially it's when you work with a community to design the research and mm -hmm. then collect the data and then analyze the data and then disseminate the data it's like you're you're working with the community at every single stage of the research process right like it's is there anything you would add to that just for, for yeah so you know sometimes it's it, it can involve dissemination but a lot of times you know the outcome is is taking action and right. so you know cbpr studies are um you know cbpr is a framework mm -hmm. um a way to do research so you can apply it to any type of study design you could do experiments with cbpr mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it depends on, um, you know, again, that mutual um, decision making between um, 
the community partner and the academic partner. Mm -hmm. um, some projects are initiated by the community. Um, some are initiated by the academic partner. I mean, um, the goal is what is ultimately going to serve, you know, the population um, of focus. And the population could be um, those at the organization, it could be the community, it could be a larger, you know, population. Mm -hmm. um, but the outcome, again, I would say is almost always an equity focused. Mm -hmm. And um, again, the products um, can vary. Um, most of the time when I'm doing CBPR products, um, it immediately turns into action. And so it might not turn into a paper, it right. might turn into a report, it might turn into some web material. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's hard work, um, mm -hmm. but very gratifying, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Thanks, Gerald. So I have like one more main question to ask you, um, and that is, when we're designing body image or like eating sort of prevention interventions for people who identify as a sexual minority. And I think, and I think just to, to say that again, from all like this whole conversation about like not kind of banding it as a, as a kind of like monolithic group, but uh, to use your language from the, from the plenary at IECD, but what are some of the key things you would say to bear in mind? Right. So that's a really good question. I would say that, um, you know, when designing studies or designing, you know, preventive interventions, um, I think, you know, the first thing is, you know, of course, first of all, you know, don't um, approach uh, sexual minority populations assuming they're a monolithic group. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know, there's nothing wrong with um, targeting things with some specificity. You know, if, for example, um, you've identified through, you know, your, a needs assessment, you know, if you're doing a preventive intervention that more work needs to be done with um, cisgender women who are, have sexual minority experiences, you can target that group. I mean, as long as it's motivated by the data. If you're targeting um, all sexual minorities and, you know, regardless of their gender identity or something like that, mm -hmm the goal is to be as inclusive as possible and, um, you know, without, again, treating them like a monolith. And you know, one of the ways to do that is recognizing the diversity of the experiences and the diversity of what could include someone under that umbrella. And, you know, throughout this podcast, you know, we've been referring to this group as sexual minorities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that was something that I should have clarified earlier on. You know, the category sexual minority is really a term that is used in research and in public health and in clinical practice. But, you know, most folks don't identify as a sexual minority. Yeah. Um, they identify, um, well, they identify however they want to identify. Mm -hmm. But, you know, more typically, they would identify as, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, asexual, pansexual. Um, they would use these social identities that actually have like a cultural valence, you know, mm -hmm. that actually have relevance and um, have more power and uh, relevance to their daily lives. Um, sexual minority is more of a, it's like a statistical term. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah, like relative yeah. to the majority. Yeah, 100%. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, um, yeah, it's, it's exactly what we use in, in research, you see it all the time, yeah. but it's not what you would use in everyday life, which is kind of yeah. like the disconnect between research. Yeah. 
And so um, what I'd recommend is, um, you know, well, first of all, like on the data instruments, a standard practice is um, to at minimum, you want to at least try to capture identity, attractions, and behavior. So how an individual identifies. And so you would want to assess whether they identify as you know, heterosexual, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, queer, questioning, you know, any number of um, these um, identity labels. Um, and there are a number of resources that individuals can, you know, go to to identify a potential, um, you know, list of identities that someone can include on a survey or that you can use in an interview if you're going to be asking people. The NIH has a sexual and gender minority research office that um, includes a compendium of resources that people can use. The Williams Institute at UCLA also offers um, a list. And... The National LGBT Health Education Network is an online website that also provides videos for how you can do this in a clinical setting. Um, you also want to ask for sexual behavior because there are folks, for example, who might identify as heterosexual, um, uh, who might engage in um, sexual behavior with people of um, the same gender um, or multiple genders. And so you might want to make sure that you're at least capturing folks who have that experience. Mm -hmm. And of course, attractions, because there are many more people who are attracted to people of the same and other gender who might not specifically identify. Um, so if you only assess identity, you might be omitting, you know, a large segment of the population who um, can fit under this group. Yeah. And then when it comes to, um, you know, outreach materials, Again, you know, this is where engaging um, members of the community can be particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to design these things in a bubble. And, you know, being a community-oriented researcher, I cannot overemphasize how important it is to pilot test any material. I mean, this is just standard practice. I mean, you yeah. know this. <laughs> you have to at least get another set of eyes yeah. on material that you produce um, and make sure that... You know, if you're going to use images of people, um, that even if your materials are specifically um, for sexual orientation, and we've only been talking about sexual orientation here, mm -hmm. remember that everyone has a sexual orientation, and that mm -hmm. also includes folks who have gender expansive identities, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we haven't talked about trans folks mm -hmm. or gender non-conforming or non-binary individuals. But I mean, it's, we're reaching a point in, in our culture, cultures overall, where, you know, recruitment materials and flyers and everything really should be inc inclusive, as inclusive as possible. So if you have people, images of people, you know, you want to be, you know, inclusive of race, ethnicity, size, gender expression, as much as possible on your flyers. Um, and not make your flyer look like it's only going to apply to cisgender white women, right? So it has to be um, speak to a diverse audience um, so folks know that it resonates with diversity across um, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, race, ethnicity, yeah. um, and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a really good point. And I do think there are some like stock images um, 
like stock websites now that are better at, at getting that. So I think it, it should be easier and easier to, to be able to have that inclusivity in, in, in materials. The last thing, um, and this is, um, you know, something that I've um, found critical um, from experience. It mm -hmm. kind of ties into um, a point I made in my talk. So I brought up uh, that quotation from Judy Bradford, you know, if you're not counted, you don't count. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what Judy Bradford was talking about primarily was the representation of um, sexual and gender minority individuals in research data. Um, but an additional sort of meta conversation that, you know, Judy was having, you know, was not just in terms of having LGBT folks represented in the data, but she was also talking about having LGBT folks doing the research. Mm -hmm. And so um, the other side of like having, um, you know, sexual minority individuals, um, when you're designing studies that have um, with LGBT folks or sexual minority folks in mind, um, is potentially considering having um, sexual minority individuals involved in conducting the research. And so that could either be making efforts to have them involved in recruitments, um, working to have research assistance, or even collaborating with folks. Um, just having them represented on the study side can have a huge impact on making sure that your study um, doesn't have any, doesn't have any gaps that the study is responsive um, mm -hmm. to community. And that always helps. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. Gerald, I have a very important final question. This has <laughs> all been um, really, really great, really informative. But I need to know before you can go. So at the Centre for Appearance Research, we have a weekly cake and coffee morning. And so, and we take it in turns to bring in cakes. So if you were able to come over to the UK and come to Bristol and come to our offices up at the University of the West of England, what cake would you bring and why? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I am a dessert fiend. Uh -huh. but the funny thing is like, um, whenever I get a question like this, I always revert back to like what kind of cake makes me the happiest most mm -hmm. consistently. So I would probably go old school and I would go with classic carrot cake with the cream cheese frosting, um, lots of walnuts. Oh, that sounds, that sounds great. I like the, the consistently making you happy. <laughs> <laughs> Reliable, consistent joy. I think that's yeah. great. That's mm -hmm. great. Well, Gerald, thank you ever so much. It's been really wonderful talking to you and I've learned so much. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. I'm glad we were able to make it work. That was great. And there was so much food for thought in there, really. I know. I think one of the big takeaways is the idea that identity is complex and we need to be careful not to equate identity with health and kind of look what's, um, as Gerald pointed out, we need to kind of look at what's kind of underneath there and what might explain... Peel back those layers. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. What, 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 what might explain the link between um, sexual orientation and body image concerns? So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we kind of got into that. I'm glad too. Yeah. So, remember, if you like this episode and you find the podcast helpful, please do drop a little review on iTunes or, you know, Apple Podcasts. It gives us a little boost and helps other people find the podcast. Yes, and in the interest of transparency, your ratings and reviews helps us get a tiny bit of funding for making the podcast in the university. 
Yes, it does. <laughs> I'm glad we're transparent about I that. <laughs> I know. We would love to keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, anyways, a big thank you to Joel Calzo for joining us on this month's episode. Definitely. And join us next time when we will be talking with Dr. Allegra Gordon about body image and eating disorders in the trans community. Brilliant.